coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Well, happy birthday, America. As we embark on our 247th year over the beginning of this week, I have to remind myself, I actually did my last show long before headlines started dropping. Last Friday, I was invited to appear on a talk radio show back in my hometown of Augusta, Georgia, so I cleared my day for the most part. I think I left here around uh, 10, 15 or so, which means that Friday's show was put to bed long before then, long before Supreme Court cases would be revealed. The two most notable, everyone is speaking about, the case involving Asian American families suing to end affirmative action. The two institutions cited the University of North Carolina and Harvard College. The other case involving, <laughs> I chuckle because I, I find it funny. It, it, it's a made up, it's a made up case. It's a matter of going to the... Could you imagine going to the Supreme Court? What if, say for example, I was going to, and they were going... That's literally what happened. 303 Creative, getting creative, or proactive, maybe, to put oneself, and it was one person, out of what would have been an awkward position. Having to provide service to same-sex couples to create a website. I have to think that our forefathers would be spinning in their graves (laughs) to think about where we as a country are today with decisions like at least the, the second case. Absolutely absurd. Asinine on its face. Then again, our forefathers may not have ever predicted a United States where same-sex couples were allowed to be same-sex couples out and public and enjoying the same unalienable rights they were promised on the same document everyone else was. So I didn't get to Friday, discuss those results and grouse about the absurdity and the hypocrisy that came from those decisions. Clarence Thomas, by the way, speaking of affirmative action, once boasted how affirmative action aided him along the way. Now, he also, in his thoughts on the case before him last week, opined that perhaps knowing that he benefited from affirmative action, made others think less of him. I, I, I tend to think maybe pubic hair on Coke cans and being touchy-feely and provocative and suggestive to women may have had more of an impact. Or perhaps having a sugar daddy, billionaire in Texas, to wine and dine you and buy your mom's house from you and your siblings only to let mom live in it after sugar daddy fixed it up 
that 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 would like trust me when I tell you when I make a list of things that I find Clarence Thomas to be a lesser justice than the others on the bench affirmative action never even rates I mean the man went to college no matter how he got in he went he graduated he graduated with honors he had a judicial career that put him on the radar for a conservative president to nominate him for the highest bench in the land. However he got there, whatever the means, he got there. His own words. I attended Yale Law School. Yale had opened its doors, its hearts, its conscience to recruit and admit minority students. I benefited from this effort. But for affirmative action, where would I be today, he asked. These laws and their proper application are all that stand before the first 17 years of my life and the second 17. Oh, he didn't write that last week. He wrote that in 1983. Perhaps we could call that the I Gots Mine Doctrine. But that seems to be a running tableau, not just of his generation, but of conservatives of his generation. The student loan kerfuffle as well. Another loss liberals had to take, although I would argue one that I think they knew they were going to take, uh, a gambit that President Biden sought, knowing he would perhaps either benefit electorally or that his opposition would suffer electorally, so be it. The right did that in 2004 with the presidential election, putting marriage amendments on the ballot in several key swing states in a year where the incumbent president was struggling at the polls. Sorry, not sorry. I, for one, take the president at his word when he says he'll do something to get student loan forgiveness done. And in the meanwhile, even the re-implementation of repayment of student loans is on a slow walk. Reminds me of when a parent tells a kid it's time to go to bed and the kid takes tiny baby itty bitty shuffle steps to the bedroom while their favorite TV show is still on and they're kind of watching it as they slowly shuffle by the television. Yeah, he'll get to it. Anyway, my my point back to the I got mine doctrine that I believe the baby boom generation and conservatives of that generation abide by is that college students of his generation didn't have skyrocketing tuition costs that today's students and graduates walk away from. Justice Thomas was, in fact, already in college when the federal student loan program even began. And back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, as we all know, going to college was at least affordable enough that a student could work part-time to make ends meet and go to college. Between Clarence's part-time jobs and his grandfather's help, he was able to pay for college without the need for student loans because that program was brand new while he was attending Holy Cross. Now listen again, when it comes to student loan forgiveness, 
Of course, President Biden in some way knew that he likely didn't have the power, but tested the waters nonetheless. And now it falls in the hands of Congress. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I almost forgot for a brief second that Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> had control of the House of Representatives. Okay, well, that's why elections matter, right? That's something else you put on that ballot barbecue in 2024. Okay, I am admittedly going all over the road here with three different Supreme Court decisions that all landed in our lap after my Friday show, so I apologize if I feel or seem a little disorganized. There's even breaking news when it comes to the affirmative action case. First, over the weekend, our friend, friend of the show, Representative Dr. Michelle Al from the Georgia General Assembly tweeted, A statement from the Democratic members of Georgia's legislative AAPI caucus on the Supreme Court's overturn of affirmative action. Quoting from that statement, she says, A less diverse educational environment hurts all students, including those of AAPI descent. Stop using us as your excuse. Wow. By the way, we did retweet that at Ron Show ETL on Twitter for as long as Twitter continues to exist. That's another story I've got to get to that has landed in our laps since the last time we did a show, Friday morning. Okay, just bear with me. We'll get to that. Oh my gosh, Elon. Hang on, let me get to the headline that is coming down as we start the week. Headline from the Associated Press, activists spurred by affirmative action ruling challenge legacy admissions at Harvard. See, it's my premise all along that while the Asian American student faction that might could point to an underrepresentation at whichever school they're complaining about, they can't necessarily correlate it just to affirmative action when about 70% of legacy admissions at Harvard are white. There's your civil rights case. By the way, some schools, like MIT, got rid of legacy admissions. There's an idea. MIT seems to be doing okay, right? MIT grads seem to perform well after graduation, do they not? Is MIT not a school that folks would love to have on their resume? Okay, back to the breaking news from the Associated Press. A civil rights group is challenging legacy admissions at Harvard University, saying the practice discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to the mostly white children of alumni. The practice of giving priority to the children of alumni has faced growing pushback in the wake of last week's Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in higher education. Colin Binkley at the Associated Press continues, the NAACP added its weight behind the effort on Monday, asking more than 1,500 colleges and universities to even the playing field in admissions, including by ending legacy admissions. Good. Get this on the docket. Get it as high up the court chain as possible. I want to see the same 6-3 majority vote to end. In fact, I wouldn't even suggest it would be a 6. It would be 9 nothing, right? I mean, if we're going to be consistent, let's watch as those six jurists from the right be consistent. We'll see. But should we not also challenge pundits on the right? who have been howling about affirmative action. Also, get on board. Let's end legacy admissions. You dislike affirmative action, you say? This is nothing but affirmative action. 
for the well-heeled and the connected. Okay, looking at the show clock, I'm running a little light on time for this first segment. I've still got more to discuss when it comes to the 303 Creative Supreme Court case where now gay people can't necessarily force a website designer to formulate their gay wedding website. didn't even know that was a thing. I have a take on that that may surprise some folks. Okay, we do have to talk about uh, Elon destroying Twitter and where the hell are we going to go from there? I have a suggestion to all of the startups that are trying to woo us. Do a better job, set the table, get ready for us. We're coming to the most hospitable table available, all right? And why, as we approach Independence Day, am I talking about Star Trek? Trust me, there is a correlation, I promise you. We will boldly go there later in the show. More on show after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. So, another huge case that I obviously did not get to catch up on last Friday is the 303 Creative versus the state of Colorado, which made its way all the way to the Supreme Court on a lie. That's right. Lori Smith, owner of 303 Creative, concocted a lie to take her discriminatory case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, (laughs) in most court cases, faked evidence would mean the case is thrown out, right? Nope, not in the highest court in the land, the most politicized court in the land. Nope, we're going to live with that decision for however long we have to live with that decision. Given the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, my lifetime, that's likely how long it'll last, if not longer. All on a lie. I know what you're thinking, Ron, how is the argument a lie? Well, listen to this. Headline from CNN. Colorado web designer told Supreme Court a man sought her services for his same-sex wedding. He says he didn't. And, by the way, he's straight. (laughs) I mean, I would say you can't make this up, but Lori Smith literally made this up. And now, for that reason, anyone who considers him or herself an artist... And, listen, I've designed some websites. I freely admit that there's... There's some art to that, right? An artist can now say, no, I refuse to do business with a same-sex couple to provide said art form for their wedding. One would have to imagine, using the slippery slope, the right loves the slippery slope, that that also means caterers can say, no, my cooking is an art form. And listen, hey, We know now cake bakers are artists. Where does it stop? Does it stop with the seamstress, the tailors, the dressmakers, the tuxedo rental, the limousine rental, the hairstylist? Listen, we gays, we're in the hairstyling business, okay? Some of y'all are lucky we don't say no to y'all. That's my second biggest problem with this case. One, that it was established that the entire premise of this case was a lie, and therefore the entire case should be thrown out. Two, that there's not a lot of definition as to which 
sort of businesses this stops at. Anything with expression. I mean, a wedding DJ can say no to a same-sex wedding. I mean, whatever. I wouldn't want some pasty, bloviated, magified, blowhard playing the Cupid Shuffle at my wedding anyway. But does it even stop at weddings? What if a same-sex couple wants to go get family pictures made with their kid or kids? Does the photog get to say no? I object. What if wife A calls a local landscaping company to come work on her and wife B's new home, their yard, and landscaper figures it out? Can that landscaper then refuse to provide his or her service to that same-sex couple? Is cutting grass, planting flowers considered an art form? You see where this devolves back into a less united United States and a denial of services. No, it's not colored people on a different side of the lunch counter. It's rainbow people not invited to the lunch counter at all. If folks can find a way to call what they do for work, expression. And so here is where I would say at some point in time when we can figure out where the slope stops, where it absolutely stops, what does and what doesn't qualify as expression, the meaning of is, what is, is, to borrow from former President Bill Clinton, what is expression? We have to define expression now. Thank you, Supreme Court. We have to define expression as opposed to just knowing what is discrimination. Because I would guess, here's the optimist in me, whenever we can come to realize what that definition is, of the word expression, that is, then we can say, okay, well, if that's it, if, it, if it's just my wedding website or the cake or the photography or the tuxedos, or the floral, or the hair, or mm -hmm, the catering, the venue. Where does it stop? Do you see what I'm saying? I guess when we finally realize what the definition of expression is, and the Supreme Court needs to get on this, because this is the mess that they've made on a case built on a lie, then the optimist in me says, well, as long as we can figure out what the definition of expression is, and then just stop it there and confess that we cannot tolerate any more discrimination, then maybe we'll be fine with it. Also, I believe, I'm trying to remember where I was listening. I was listening to a legal expert who said something along the lines of the state of Colorado wasn't necessarily trying to force the web designer to design a same-sex wedding website. And, and how could they when the damned wedding didn't exist? It was built on a lie. All the state wanted, I believe, was for the web designer 
to post that disclaimer on their website. And Lori Smith and 303 Creative didn't want to do that. Proud Christian she is, except she doesn't want to be that proud. Because if you hang that scarlet letter on your website, admitting you are a capital red B bigot, it might look poorly on your website. It, it might cast a negative light on your business. We wouldn't want that, would we? I just don't want to ever hear complaints from the right when another Sarah Huckabee Sanders is invited to leave a restaurant, which, by the way, we've established before, right? Cooking is art. It is an expression. Ever again. Or when a family refuses to serve the Trump family for any reason because granddad was a Klansman. Huh, wait a minute. This uh, slippery slope stuff is starting to get fun. Am I right, righties? More on show after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So here we are on the precipice of celebrating our nation's birth. 247 years into existence now. <laughs> Doing math on the fly. And there's probably very little discussion being had about what's gone right with America since its birth. What's gone wrong? Promises made, promises kept, promises met, promises yet to be, promises delayed, promises denied. You can make healthy lists, columns on a steno pad for all of those, and that would be a healthy discussion. Now, I don't honestly believe anybody's going to go out there and have these discussions at the family barbecue or on your pontoon while listening to music and jumping in and out of the water on this incredibly hot week. Uh, and I understand that. But that's what I'm here for, I guess, to foster that dialogue. What's gone right? What's gone wrong? What promises were made? What have been kept? What have been denied? What have yet to be met? What promises have been long since forgotten since our forefathers on that fateful day, July 4th, 1776, decided to embark on a new mission? So, I am a bit of a Trekkie. Yes, I freely admit it. I enjoy Star Trek. First, let me say, you don't have to be a Star Trek fan to understand this conversation. I enjoy Star Trek uh, not just because of the science fiction aspect, because there's sci-fi everywhere. I liked the reboot of Lost in Space. I thought that was cute. The Netflix series, by the way, not the movie with uh, Matt LeBlanc. Eh, didn't care for that. What else? Uh, I like the uh, Battlestar Galactica revival. Thought that was very well done on sci-fi. But there are elements to Lost in Space, to the revamp of Battlestar Galactica, and to Star Trek from its inception that I've enjoyed as well. And it's not the zooming around in space or the high-tech stuff or the science, literally fiction, a lot of which has become reality when you think back to the 1960s era of Star Trek but also to the philosophy, the religiosity even, especially in the case of Battlestar Galactica, to the hope for a brighter future for humanity, for the hope, especially in Star Trek's case, that we will see each other as humans in a human race and not have to rely on filling out forms that denote what race of human we are. 
As a matter of fact, in 1976, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry embarked on an album that comprised of sound effects and uh, scene music and interviews with the show's cast. And it was chapter nine of that album, on vinyl, by the way, where he talks about the Star Trek philosophy. And as we live in an era in this country, in its 246th going on seventh year in existence, where diversity, equity, inclusion are bad words for one side of the political spectrum and aspirational terms for everyone else, I thought this might be a worthy listen. So take a listen to Gene Roddenberry on the Star Trek philosophy. I think probably the most often asked question about the show is, is why the Star Trek phenomenon? And this is, incidentally, not just a fan or a Trekkie question. It is now being asked by communications experts, by sociologists, educators, and others. Uh, There have already been a couple of master's theses written on this, and there are a couple of doctorates uh, presently at work. And it could be an important question, because you can ask, uh, how can a simple space opera with blinking lights and zap guns and a hobgoblin with pointy ears uh, reach out and touch the hearts and minds of of literally millions of people and become a cult in, in some cases? Obviously, what this means is that television has incredible power. Uh, They're saying that if a Star Trek can do this, uh, then perhaps another carefully calculated show could move people in other directions. What's to keep selfish interests uh, from creating other cults for selfish purposes? Industrial cartels, political parties, Mm. governments. Mm. Ultimate power in this world, as you know, has always been one simple thing the control and manipulation of minds. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, any attempt, however, to manipulate people through any so-called Star Trek formula is doomed to failure, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. First of all, our show did not reach and affect all these people because it was deep and great literature. Star Trek was not Ibsen or Shakespeare. To get a primetime show network show on the air and to keep it there, you must attract and hold a minimum of 18 million people every week. You have to do that in order to woo people away from Gomer Pyle, Bonanza, Beverly Hillbillies, and so on. Um, And we tried to do this with entertainment, action, adventure, conflict, and so on. But once we got on the air, and within the limits of those action and adventure limits, we, we did not accept the myth that the television audience has an infantile mind. We had an idea, and we had a premise. Thank you, and we still believe that. As a matter of fact, we decided to risk the whole show on, on that premise. We believe that the often ridiculed mass audience is sick of this world's petty nationalism and all its old ways and old hatreds, and that people are not only willing but anxious to think beyond those petty beliefs that have for so long kept mankind divided. Wow. Okay. 
So you see that the, the formula, the magic ingredient that many people keep seeking and many of them keep missing is, is really not in Star Trek. It is in the audience. There is an intelligent life form out on the other side of that television tube. <laughs> the whole show was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but to take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms. Aye. We tried to say that the worst possible thing that can happen to all of us is for the future to somehow press us into a common mold where we begin to act and talk and look and think alike. If we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that's almost certainly out there. And I think this is what people responded to. The result of that was after seven years after being dropped by the network of, of saying those things, there are now more people watching it than ever before. And if you ascribe those things to any mystic or scriptural brilliance in Star Trek, you miss the entire point. What Star Trek proves, as faulty as individual episodes could be, is that the much maligned common man and common woman has an enormous hunger for brotherhood. They are ready for the 23rd century now, and they are light years ahead of their petty governments and their visionless leaders. Wow. 47 years ago, that's Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, saying those words. He said, we tried to say that the worst possible thing that can happen to all of us is for the future to somehow press us into a common mold where we begin to act and talk and look and think alike. If we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that's almost certainly out there. Honestly, you can even see that in the way we travel. For example, in 2019, according to a Simmons National Consumer Study, 57% of liberals hold passports, only 48% of conservatives. Hear that again. There is a nine-point gap in percentage when it comes to whether or not a liberal or a conservative will travel outside of the United States. People who self-identify as politically liberal are more likely to hold a valid passport than those who call themselves conservatives. Now, I must also caution against the stereotype that, oh, well, that surely means that most Star Trek fans are liberals. Actually, I don't know the data on that. I should look that up. But I do know that, anecdotally speaking, not all Star Trek fans are liberals. I was just on a conservative talk show last Friday. That host, one Austin Rhodes, huge Star Trek fan. It boggles my mind to this day how there's such a disconnect between the Star Trek philosophy and the ideology of that Star Trek fan. Then again, one of, if not the most popular Star Trek movie in the canon is the second, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which has a little science-y touch to it, but a lot of battle scenes. <laughs> and maybe maybe there are those that just like to see things zapped and pummeled and destroyed and blasted to bits. And maybe that's the part of Star Trek some folks enjoy. I'm not going to superimpose my hypothesis on others. 
pardon me now while I pivot from Star Trek philosophy to the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice, by the way, that list, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are not optional. It's not life, liberty, and or the pursuit of happiness. It is all three. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, men capitalized to mean human, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. What would come later in the U.S. Constitution from many of those same forefathers was the brilliance of giving we the people the opportunity to transform our government without bloodshed. Now, blood has been shed to maintain that government, and blood has been shed to try and change that government. But by and large, we the people have the devices within our hands every two years, every four years, every year you have the opportunity to vote and to speak between those votes to win over hearts and minds, to craft our government to serve in the form and function for which we, the majority, desire. The preamble continues. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. So while we celebrate our 247th year of existence as a nation, mostly united, we're not going to stop and think about the opportunity, the freedom, the devices our forefathers gave us to craft and continue to tinker with, making ours a more perfect union. We're going to grill out. We're going to go swimming. We're going to suntan. We're going to cook and hang out with friends and family. We're going to watch fireworks. And then on the 5th, we will return to work, and to our predictable political ideological bunkers and find ourselves 
where we've been for far too long, in my opinion. Our forefathers were both brilliant men and flawed men. Also, they were free, white men. Could they have predicted an end to slavery? Surely. Many actually pursued its end during the nation's infancy. Could they have predicted equality for women? Maybe. Star Trek loves a good time travel story. In fact, the last episode of Strange New Worlds featured time travel. If our forefathers were able to travel forward into time to today, would they be happy with the state of our nation? Which side of the ideological spectrum would they find themselves more aligned with? Heck, I'm not a religious person, but I would argue do the same with Jesus, the Son of God. Beam him up to 2023. Seems he was a fairly liberal socialist to me, as best I can recall from my days in Sunday school. Our forefathers, rather progressive as well. How's that for an Independence Day conversation to be had by one? More Ron Show after this. Final segment of the Ron Show. For the start of the Independence Day week, and I appreciate you listening, even though, come on, it's like a long four-day weekend, people really doing the normal things. Thank you for listening, those of you that do. I put a little effort into this today. Actually, I'll put a lot of effort into this today, damn it, but nonetheless, it's almost over. So, (laughs) over the weekend, we started noticing we'd get on Twitter, right? If you're on Twitter, you know what I'm talking about. And you'd start getting these notifications. Like, you have reached your maximum for the day on Twitter. And we thought, okay, well, this is just a silly little glitch, refresh. No. No, this is something that Elon Musk says that he had to enforce. He's had to throttle back Twitter usage. And the implication is that uh, that's going to become a premium service. We're going to start paying, again, looking for money from us, paying for increased Twitter usage. Well, that's that's not that's not social media, Elon. That's not no. That's 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 like cable television. Like I can spend a certain amount of money for cable television, or spend more and get more of it, or spend more and get more of it, or spend more and get more of it, or I can get a high def antenna and watch all the free basic television that I can get at no cost after the HD antenna, of course. I mean, you got to have a mobile device to use Twitter anyway, so... Oh, and by the way, if you don't have a Twitter account, now you can't even look at stuff on Twitter. This is not, <laughs> this is not going well for Elon. And, and then we found out, by the way, the reason, the real reason, this is all coming down. Twitter ain't paying its bills. Reading from Wired.com, Elon Musk has tweeted about drastically limiting the number of tweets people can read. This update comes as Platformer reports that Twitter has refused to pay its Google Cloud bills, leading to questions on how its trust and safety teams could be compromised. Musk, who is the CTO and owner of Twitter, said on Saturday that the move to limit posts was, quote, to address extreme levels of data scraping and system manipulation. Data scraping refers to a process where data or content is extracted from one site, often without permission, to be displayed on another. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO, the article continues, tweeted that verified accounts would be able to read 10,000 tweets a day, and unverified accounts 
would be able to read 1,000 tweets a day. Newly created unverified accounts will be limited to 500 tweets a day. As the article points out, Musk initially announced stricter limits, but he changed it within hours. <laughs> he did not mention when the restrictions would be lifted. The article continues, the announcement comes after users reported that they were met with error messages that read, cannot retrieve tweets well into Sunday with hashtags like Twitter down and RIP Twitter continuing to trend. The article continues, thousands said they were unable to access the social media site according to website Down Detector, which tracks internet disruptions. Twitter previously allowed people to view content without being signed in. The site has suffered technical difficulties in recent months. Now, the article does state that while some have connected Twitter's limiting move to Twitter's purported refusal to pay its Google Cloud bills, as reported by Zoe Shifter and Casey Newton in Platformer, it is yet unclear if one is the consequence of another. The report on Platformer, by the way, makes pretty clear that while Twitter does house some of its own data, it also had contracted with Google and Amazon. And by the way, the date to renew the contract with Google was allegedly June 30th. Well, it's now July. All I know is, if you thought there was an exodus from Twitter before, this is going to be the exodus. This is it. This is the one. The question now is, where the hell are we going? You have to have an invitation to Blue Sky. You have to have an invitation to most of these. And none of the alternatives, whether it be Spoutable or Mastodon or Blue Sky or what have you, the problem with all of them, if you ask me, is that you can't just take your username and migrate over to it and import the usernames of those you follow and your followers so that if and when they come aboard that social medium as well, you're all reconnected. Wouldn't that be nice? I would love that. It's kind of like when you decide to trade your phone in. By the way, I've got to trade my phone in. I'm on an 11. I need to get a 14. And I tried to do that last week. And I went to one of those authorized AT&T places. And the young ladies working there, I mean, I, I could have been a ghost for all I know. Anyway, um, when you take your phone in, you get to import your contacts and everything on your phone from one device to the other. Love it, right? When one of those social mediums says, hey, hey, we'll do that with our Twitter followers and those that we follow. And God, wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow like import all of the stuff we do? Oh, that would be amazing. But then I guess you'd have to have access to all the stuff on Twitter. And hell, we barely have access to it now ourselves. Anyway, when somebody at least sets the tables with the follows and followers, oh, chef's kiss. That's where I'm going. In the meanwhile, I guess I'm waiting on a blue sky invitation. Whimper. You know how you know you're a shitty billionaire? When Donald Trump comes out with something similar to what you own, and it functions better. That man couldn't run a university, couldn't ship stakes, couldn't run a foundation, bankrupted. What was it? Four companies, a grand total of six times, and yet he's running Truth Social better than Elon's running Twitter? How embarrassing. Two things. No, I'm not moving to Truth Social. And can we all admit now, billionaires really aren't all that necessary. It's the work done for them that is. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. 
We'll be back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. More at RonShowATL.com. Happy birthday, America. We'll see you next time.